This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the epic sounds of one of the great American movie soundtracks of all time, one of the great movies of all time, The Godfather. And on this day in history in 1972, The Godfather was released. It broke box office records, it won huge critical acclaim, and helped revive the ailing Hollywood studio system. The movie launched the career of director Francis Ford Coppola and relaunched the flagging flagging career of screen icon Marlon Brando, starring as the aging, brooding Mafia Don. The Godfather is the saga of an American family. In essence, it is the story of America. Here's Al Pacino on The Godfather's opening scene. I believe in America. America has made my fortune. And I raised my daughter in the American fashion. I gave her freedom, but I taught her never to dishonor her family. Uh, A few months ago, for the first time, I had watched The Godfather. And there's this beautifully shot scene where the guy comes to The Godfather and asks him to help him. And starts relating the story of how his daughter was abused. Do what I beg you to do. What was that? I thought, this is what made the movie. Everyone can relate to that. The universe can relate to that. Here's a guy got really tragic problems, his daughter being raped and beaten. He goes to the Godfather because nobody else will help him. We've known each other many years, but this is the first time you ever came to me for counsel for help. Now you come to me and you say, Don Corleone, give me justice. You don't ask with respect. You don't offer friendship. You don't even think to call me Godfather. Everybody feels that thing of I've only had some place I can go to get justice, to get taken care of, to be helped. Be my friend. Godfather. It's everybody's dream to have the father, the Godfather. Call it a Godfather who comes and helps you with your issues. But the making of this gangster classic, considered by many to be the greatest film ever made, was almost as brutal as the movie itself. A genuine mafia godfather vowed to stop the movie by any means necessary. Left with no choice, Hollywood struck an historic deal with the mob itself. Godfathers have been part of the popular culture now. It was more than just a movie. It changed the way pictures looked. It changed the way pictures were cast. It was a seminal moment. To this day, I don't know that anybody else has ever achieved it. Without the mob being involved in making The Godfather, there'd be no Godfather. This is the untold story of how the greatest film in American history was made. The Godfather is the story of the Corleone family, Michael, the idealistic and youngest son of Don Vito Corleone, the head of the most powerful mafia family in New York, who returns home as a war hero and is determined to live his own life. But tragic circumstances suck him into his family's violent world. This story is the brainchild of author Mario Puzo. In the mid-1960s, Puzo was broke, reeling from the failure of his first two novels. Here's the Godfather producer Al Ruddy and his executive assistant, Betty McCart. It's a man who never had too much success in his life. He wrote a book called The Fortunate Pilgrim. 
It's a masterpiece. We won a book club award. It was really a, a work of art, a real piece of literature. And uh, uh, three people read it in the whole world, you know. Everyone who had read the book said, Mario, there's one character in that book you should expand and do another book on. And that was this dawn in the book. Puzo's The Fortunate Pilgrim featured a cameo appearance from an aging mafia don. Puzo realized this character could be the basis for the bestseller he so desperately needed, and the timing couldn't have been better. Real-life godfathers such as Carlo Gambino had been thrust into the spotlight after a series of high-profile FBI investigations. Puzo decided to exploit the public's newfound appetite for the mob, but he knew nothing about the mob, so he headed to Vegas, which by the late 1960s had become the Mafia Playground. He met with pit bosses at the Sands and other hotels who would share stories on the inner workings of the mob. Puzo wove these stories into his 1969 novel, The Godfather, his fifth. It became an instant bestseller. In fact, it was the fastest-selling novel in history, confirming the public's appetite for all things mafia. Despite the book's global success, Paramount Pictures, who had bought the film rights for $80,000, vowed they would never make The Godfather into a movie. Like the other Hollywood studios, it was reeling from the loss of cinema audience to television. But in that year, Puzo's book sold millions of copies. Paramount knew they had to capitalize on The Godfather, but wanted to minimize their risks. So they issued a tiny $2.5 million budget for the picture and began assembling a production staff. Loitering on the back lot was Al Ruddy, an up-and-coming young producer with a reputation for not going over budget. With the budget in safe hands, Ruddy and Paramount then approached a young director named Francis Ford Coppola. Coppola was considered an outsider, a maverick, with a strong independent spirit. Paramount originally had other directors in mind for The Godfather, but Elia Kazan, Arthur Penn, Richard Brooks, and Costas Gravis all turned the job down. Coppola needed the job because he was broke. Paramount needed Coppola because he was cheap with encouragement from his young assistant, a guy named George Lucas. Coppola signed on. In 1970, the ailing Paramount Pictures put The Godfather into production on a budget under $6 million, which was a pittance considering most of their films were given around $25 million budgets. As a cost-cutting measure, Paramount asked Coppola to modernize his 1940 script so the action would take place in 1972. They also wanted to shoot the movie in Kansas City instead of Coppola's preferred budget-busting New York City. The setting for the film was going to be translated to the early 1970s, and they were going to shoot it either on studio sets, which would have been terrible, or in a city other than New York, because shooting in New York is always more expensive and more problematic than shooting anywhere else. Francis Coppola absolutely wanted to shoot the movie in New York City, and Al Ruddy wanted to shoot it there too. There was no question it would be better shooting it there than elsewhere. There's no place else that you could get that kind of authenticity. And when we come back, more on this epic story, the the anniversary of the day The Godfather was released nationally. This is Our American Stories. More on this epic story after these messages.
This is Our American Stories for the hour, the story of the making of The Godfather. And there are not many better stories about art and commerce and the intersection of the two than this story behind the making of this epic American picture. And it's my favorite. And not many people don't think it's one of the greats ever made. And on this day in history, in 1972, The Godfather was released. And as always, are this days in histories are brought to us from the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the finer things in life, the arts, philosophy, and so much more. And by the way, there is so much philosophy in this movie. We'll get to that later. In fact, a conversation I had with Dr. Larry Arn and some students about The Godfather may have been one of the most interesting I ever had in my life at Hillsdale College. Dr. Arn's take on this movie was fascinating. Back to the story, Paramount finally relented and that is on the decisions Coppola wanted to make, particularly about filming this in New York. And by the way, not in the 1970s. Coppola won the day. It was the 1940s. It had to be the 1940s. That's when the movie and the book both take place. So you wanted to stick with accuracy, not stick to cheaper budgets. But news that Paramount intended to shoot a mafia film in New York City enraged New York's mob-supported organization, the Italian-American Civil Rights League. The League's mission was to challenge the stereotypes, especially from movies and TV, that all Italians were involved in organized crime. When The Godfather was announced, the Civil Rights League totally realized that this would never be positive for the Italian-Americans. They claimed there was no mafia, that there was no Casa Nostra, and they didn't want us to make a movie about mafia or Casa Nostra. The mafia is in Italy. How many? I don't know. They're in Italy. They're not here. Well, they were here. And the league's charismatic and usually powerful frontman was Joseph Colombo himself. Joseph was the boss of the Colombo crime family, one of the five families of the Cosa Nostra that had a stranglehold over the streets of New York. Here was a man who was undoubtedly the head of a major mafia organization and at the same time claimed he was fighting for Italian-American civil rights. As far as they were concerned, he was a good-natured, pleasant person who deeply believed in the rights of Italian-Americans. The fact that he was also being investigated on about 12 federal charges for larceny, embezzlement, gambling, and corruption uh, probably sort of slipped through the cracks. Joseph Colombo decided to turn the League's discontent into direct action against the Godfather. Here is one of the League's members protesting, followed by Joseph Colombo himself. We are righteous. We represent good. We are good, we do good, and we're going to force you to do good. The League is under God's eyes, and as long as it does good things, the League will get stronger and stronger. And those who go against the League will feel his sting. A campaign of violence and intimidation began against the Godfather. Here's famed mob buster, NYPD's chief rackets investigator, Joe Coffey. The threats against Paramount were coming from the League and the mob, which is one entity. There was no distinguishing one from the other at that time because the mob totally took over the movement. The first person targeted was the Godfather's producer, Al Ruddy, who began receiving phone calls. They were threatening his life, and that's very scary. I mean, they would make veiled threats about his family and everything else. And yeah, he was really, he was very nervous about the whole thing. I was notified by some people in the LAPD. And I'm sure, coming from Washington, but basically locally, 
that I was being trailed. I was being followed every place I went in Los Angeles. Al, who's in himself a great Italian war hero, decided that he would trade cars with me. One night, my secretary, Betty McGarr, took my doogie out to her house. And in the middle of the night, someone blew out all the windows to the car and left a note where the windshield had been, saying that they didn't want the picture made. So we were getting subtle messages. Bob Evans, the head of production for Paramount, was threatened, as was his wife, Allie McGraw. Bob got a call from the league saying they didn't want to see the movie made, and if it was made, this would be a lot of problems. So Bob said, I'm not producing it. Al Ruddy is. And Joe said, when we kill a snake, we chop its head off first. In defiance of this intimidation campaign, Al Ruddy and the Godfather crew moved right into the heartland of the New York City Mafia, Little Italy itself. Here again is New York City mob buster Joe Coffey on how the mafia controlled the streets of New York. The Italian mafia went into Italian grocery stores and meat stores and bars and catering establishments and forced them to put their signs in their window. And the people who put those in their windows would have to pay the mob for the privilege of putting those things in their windows. So it was a total intimidation factor, not only of the people who made the Godfather, but also of the Italian-American community in New York City and the surrounding area. Terrified of reprisals, the residents and small business owners had no choice but to turn away the production team who were scouting for filming locations. Director Francis Ford Coppola got the same message. Francis, without any permission, came to Mulberry Street to do a test. And Saeed just built this cinemobile. He had like a main four in equipment. They parked it on the street and went into Umberto's to have lunch. And when they came out, the truck was gone. <laughs> they were just showing them that, you know, you're not coming here. And he was just doing test shots. It also must be said that inside of that stolen truck, there was over a million dollars worth of filming equipment. More worryingly, Mafia boss Colombo held an ace card that could shut down the production for good. The Mafia, who owned the labor unions, could organize pickets, boycotts, and all-out strikes within hours. If Colombo turned the unions against Paramount, they wouldn't be able to shoot a single frame. Nothing was going to move forward past a certain point unless we sat down with the league or the people who were really obstacles to us making this movie. It became very apparent. They knew they had to cooperate. They knew they needed a sympathetic mafia to shoot that film, especially in New York. Left with no choice, producer Al Ruddy had to meet face-to-face with the Mafia Don who was stopping the Godfather in its tracks. Al goes to a meeting at the Park Sheraton Hotel thinking it's going to be a small group, and what it winds up being is 600 members in a giant ballroom all ready to take him apart. At that meeting, in front of 600 people, Al told them the truth, which was that the movie wasn't going to stereotype all Italian-Americans and that they were corrupt Irish people and corrupt Jewish people and, you know, corrupt wasps in the movie, too. I said, this is not going to be one of those cliché Italian, let's get the Italian gangsters in America, because then it's not going to have the broad appeal that worked for the book. To confirm Al Ruddy's claims... In March of 1971, Joseph Colombo himself demanded a secret meeting to read the Godfather's script. You can't make this stuff up, folks. 
Here's Ruddy again. Down the hallway come Joe, Colombo, and two guys. Lock the door. Joe sits opposite me. Butter sits on the couch. Caesar's on the window. I say, you are the only person, Joe, who's going to look at this whole script. No one has seen it. I give him the 155 pay script. He puts his glasses on. He asked me, like, what does fade in mean? A couple of terms he didn't quite understand. And I realized, looking at him, there was no way, no way, he's going to sit there with 155 pages. So he takes, oh, God, these glasses. I can't read the glass. He throws it. He's you read about it. Guy jumps off. Me? Give it to season. He throws it the other way. Now they're passing the script around like it's a hand grenade with the pin pulled out, right? <laughs> Finally, Joe takes the script and smashes it on my desk. He says, wait a second. Do we trust this guy? Yeah, we all like him. <laughs> I made a deal with him right there. That's how the deal was made. Al Ruddy made the deal of his life. Al Ruddy is probably should have been a godfather. If he wasn't Jewish, he'd be a great godfather. What Al Ruddy made the deal was very simple. simple. He said, we'll take out any words you don't want. You don't want mafia? We'll take it out. And so he did. And by the way, it didn't change anything. And by the way, I've never understood why that would be a concession. Because in any good script, the word mafia wouldn't be mentioned. Mafiosa don't use the word mafia. Other people use it. They don't use the word. And the script really wasn't altered. He, he made concessions he didn't actually need to make. But what he provided, the godfather himself, was reassurance. Do you trust this guy? And they did. And by the way, this was not caricature, and it was not stereotype. And there were corrupt Jews, corrupt Irish cops. It was all there. It was about the nature of sin itself, and the nature of tribalism, and gangs, and warfare, and the violation of the rule of law, and about what happens when tribes go at each other. And we're going to talk more about that and more. An hour on The Godfather, on this day in history... In 1972, this great movie was released. our American stories and for the hour the story of the making of the Godfather which was released nationally on this day in history in 1972 this story itself could be a movie and when we left off there was a negotiation between Al Ruddy producer of the Godfather and the Godfather himself one of the chiefs of one of the big families in New York Joe Colombo Colombo immediately agreed to Ruddy's offer, the offer we learned about in the last segment. The irony was, if he had read the script, he would have realized that the word mafia only ever appeared in the script one time. There was only one place, one place where the word was used. It said, no guinea goomba wop greaseball mafias are coming out of the woodwork to get Johnny Fontaine that job. So, of course, no mafia. 
So now the movies are only kidding going by wild grease balls are coming out of the woodwork to get Johnny Fontaine that job. I don't care how many Dago Guinea Wap grease ball goombas come out of the woodwork. I'm German Irish. So they left all the other derogatory words in and just took out Mafia and they were happy. That was the only mention in the whole script of Mafia. I couldn't make an issue of it to let them think they hadn't gotten anything until the movie was finished. They allowed them to use these premises, apartments, bars, restaurants, but they had to pay for it and the mob got the money. They gave a pittance to the owner of the establishment, but the mob got most of the money. So the rules, so to speak, were made by the mob. They encouraged the producers of The Godfather to use premises like this that they controlled. When Paramount agreed to drop the word mafia from the Godfather script, just another example of how influential the mafia was in America. Bending under the pressure of the mafia sends a message, at least to somebody like me, who knows the deal, that uh, they're cowards, which they are. Once the deal was made with the league, but never a problem after that. Finally, after a year of adversity, Coppola began to shoot The Godfather on the streets of New York City. But when the first scenes of The Godfather began to arrive back in Hollywood, the Paramount executives thought Coppola was making their investment look like an art film. And his insistence that an unknown actor named Al Pacino play the lead role of Michael Corleone further antagonized the studio heads. They didn't want Al Pacino. Al Pacino was a midget. He's very short. And he was very inexperienced in their opinion. And having a short, unknown, low-key actor appearing in the pivotal role in a major motion picture was not what Bob Evans wanted. Al Pacino made just 35000 for starring in the film. Coppola's outsider approach to filmmaking was evident in his casting choices. He preferred actors who were either unknown, unlikely, or in the case of Marlon Brando, unpopular with the Hollywood studios. There are a host of almost cast stories, but perhaps the biggest is that Orson Welles lobbied to get the part of Don Vito Corleone, offering to lose a good deal of weight in order to get that role. Coppola, a huge Welles fan, had to turn him down because his mind was set on Brando. Here's Coppola with the behind-the-scenes story of Marlon Brando's casting. The Godfather casting, especially for the character of Vito Corleone, was difficult because he was meant to be an older, really Italian-American person because the story was set in New York. And it's hard to find a 60-year-old newcomer who hasn't already distinguished himself. And so when we looked at the various actors who could play the part, there, there really weren't any that we felt had the charisma or the mystery that could do it. So I concluded, who are the two greatest actors in the world, or the three greatest actors in the world, who are vaguely the age to, to play it? And we concluded, well, there was Laurence Olivier, and there was Marlon Brando. Laurence Olivier was British, with a British accent, and was actually quite ill. Marlon Brando was only 47, but Marlon Brando had another problem. Hey, was um, considered very troublesome, and his last few pictures had been big flops. Uh, it was a film called Quemada. It had done terribly, and the executive said, if you put Marlon Brando in The Godfather, it would be, it would be do less business than if you put a totally nobody in it. 
the president of Paramount told me in these words, he says, Francis, as president of Paramount Pictures, I am telling you that Marlon Brando will not be in this movie. Well, at that point, I just, I remember I just fell off the chair and lay on the rug and say, well, if I can't even pursue the few ideas I have, you know, what, what do you expect of me? So they said, all right, we'll, we'll give you three conditions for Brando to be in the picture. Number one, he must do a screen test. Number two, he must put up a billion dollar bond that none of his behavior problems will cause uh, delays on the production and number three he must do the film for nothing <laughs> so I listened to these three conditions and I said I said okay <laughs> because now they had said maybe Marlon Brando could be in the picture if I met these three conditions how stupid they may be I called up the house uh, that I was given to to speak to Marlon Brando and I didn't know him and I was very very respectful of him of course because of his great great past work and I said basically Mr. Brando this character is an Italian maybe you'd like to experiment a little to see if you can play yeah you're right maybe maybe we can uh, see how I would do it he didn't know he was doing a screen test he just was experimenting I said we have to be like ninjas we have to go to Mr. Brando's house don't make any noise and we'll just sort of photograph him experimenting to be an Italian so we went, we arrived very early in the morning and no one said a word. I had brought little dishes of Italian cheese, little Italian cigars, little pepperoncini or little sausages, little things I just put around in, in his house. Didn't say a word about it. And he came out, he had long blonde hair. He was very, you know, he was, as I said, only 47. He was quite a handsome young man. And as he came out, he, in a beautiful Japanese robe, I remember, he came out and he took his long hair and he kind of put it up behind his head and pinned it in and he got some shoe polish and he started to make it black and kind of do that. And then he put a white shirt on and I remember he took the white shirt and he was taking his collar, interesting about little seeds of a character, and he started to bend the end of the collar and he said, oh, those Italian guys, the collar is always bent. And and he even said, oh, maybe his voice should be very hoarse because he shot in the story in the throat. <laughs> he was talking like this. <laughs> like that, not saying anything. And meanwhile, we were photographing this. So he reached down and took a little of the cheese and nibbled and he took the little cigar and he didn't light it, but he kept going. <laughs> he even took some Kleenex and he put it into his mouth and said, uh, you know, and he, he said, those guys look like bulldogs. And it was a miracle because the character was growing out of this. Indeed. And in fact, we're going to learn more about this screen, screen test, this screen test that Brando didn't know was a screen test. When we come back for the hour, the story of the Godfather, the making of the Godfather on this day in history in 1972, this movie was released. It broke box office records, won huge critical acclaim. It helped revive the ailing Hollywood studio system. But as you're listening to it, my goodness, the struggles, the difficulties of getting this movie made, getting it cast, just getting past the mob is a story enough. When we come back, 
the story of the making of The Godfather, the final scene in this hour-long tribute to Francis Ford Coppola's masterpiece. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, the final chapter of this remarkable story, How the Godfather Came to Be. It was released on this day in history in 1972. We just learned that in the end, Francis Ford Coppola had to fight for almost everything in this movie. Fights that you just almost couldn't describe. They were constant. Well, he tricked Marlon Brando into testing for a part that Marlon Brando would have never tested for. He was Marlon Brando, for goodness sake. Here's Coppola on the aftermath of this secret screen test. I took this tape, and I didn't know what to do with it. So rather than show it to the president of Paramount Pictures, I decided to go to New York and and show it to the chairman and the owner of Paramount, who was named Charlie Bluthorn, who was an interesting person. You should read about him. And he had a company called Gulf and Western. It was the first conglomerate, and one of the companies he owned was Paramount. I'm going to make him an offer, Gamble, for you. So I went to his office in New York, and I set up this tape in a conference room right outside uh, where Mr. Bluthorn's office was, and I knocked on the door. Charlie Bluthorn comes out, and he recognized me. Oh, Francis, what can I do? I said, well, look at this. And I turned on the tape recorder, and there is Marlon Brando with this long blonde hair rolling it up. And Charlie Bluthorn said, no, no, absolutely not. Marlon Brando, ah. And as he watched and saw this transformation, he said, that's incredible. That's incredible. And as at that moment, I knew that I had Brando in the part, And, of course, they didn't make him do a bond for his behavior, and they didn't pay him very much. But, in fact, uh, he got the part, and, of course, Brando, uh, uh, to this day, is thought of for that role. I want you to go tonight. I want you to talk to this movie, Big Shot, and settle this business with Johnny. Now, if there's nothing else, I'd like to go to my daughter's wedding. And, indeed, one of the critical choices that Coppola made in one of the Many fights he fought for in casting and in every other respect. And boy, did this one pay off. Meanwhile, after attempts at blocking the film for so long, the mafia were becoming seduced by Hollywood. To the mob, since Hollywood were making a film about them, it was only natural that they should be given starring roles. At the Corleone compound in Staten Island, the mafia and Hollywood finally merged during the filming of the seminal wedding scene. And there was one major role that had yet to be cast that of Luca Brasi, the Godfather's personal hitman. That's when Lenny Montana, a former professional wrestler turned Columbo Mafia member, 
walked on the Godfather's set. Tall and heavily built, Montana's talents were mostly as a mafia enforcer and arsonist. Montana would tie a tampon to the tail of a mouse, dip it in kerosene, light it, and let the mouse run through a building. Or he would put a candle in front of a cuckoo clock so that when the clock's bird would pop out, the candle would be knocked over and start a fire. Eventually, Montana ended up doing time in Rikers Island. Producer Ruddy knew he was perfect for this role. One day we looked around, and here was Lenny Montana. So I went over and I met Lenny, and I brought him over to Francis. He was perfect. He was of the boys, and he was a major player. Lenny Montana was a hitman and a bodyguard for one of the big families. He wanted to change his career <laughs> and become an actor. Montana's first scene with Marlon Brando, the greatest actor of his generation. Well, the mafia man was so nervous that he couldn't muster a good take for the scene that takes place in the Godfather's study on the day of his daughter's wedding, despite a full day of shooting. Coppola didn't have time to reshoot the scene, so he added a new scene of Montana painfully rehearsing his lines before his meeting with the Godfather. But the rehearsal scene is not acting. Lenny never acted before. <laughs> so Francis said, well, just go sit down and run your lines and we'll shoot you. Can we? So you get used to the camera. So the marvelous moment you see on the side said, Don Corleone, I'm honored to let it to be the, the, I hope the male, the firstborn is a male. That was his rehearsal. So he was talking to himself and talking to himself, this big man so afraid, and Francis shot that and realized, gee, that's perfect, because he was really just doing his lines. Don Carlo, I am honored and grateful that you have invited me to your home on the wedding day of your daughter. And may that first child be a masculine child. Lenny was a very powerful man, but on the set, these guys who had an acting role were also scared and so nervous. I mean, it's like acting was more frightening than doing whatever they did in the past. Don Colleone, I am honored and grateful that you have invited me to your daughter's wedding. On the day of your daughter's wedding. And I hope that their first child be a masculine child. I pledge my ever-ending loyalty for your daughter's bridal purse. Thank you, my most valued friend. Don Calion, I'm going to leave you now because I know you are busy. Thank you. For movie-going audiences in the 1970s, the world they were living in was being threatened by drastic social change. Institutions like marriage and family were targets of the counterculture. And the Godfather's focus on the strong, tight-knit bond between Don Vito Corleone and his mobster family was, by contrast, both traditional and reassuring. You spend time with your family? Sure I do. Good. Because a man that doesn't spend time with his family can never be a real man. The Godfather is this perfect reflection of its time period in a lot of ways. Perhaps for members of the audience, they were comforted by the fact that here you have very traditional, very clearly defined male roles and female roles. In The Godfather, members of the Corleone crime family are not depicted as one-dimensional criminals, but as multi-layered men with family values whose chosen business is crime. 
What made it hold up was the values that Don Corleone, played by Marlon Brando, held for his children and his family. As twisted as they were in his mind, everything he did was for them. We see ourselves in their family rituals. You're invited to their weddings. You're invited to their baptisms. You eat spaghetti in their kitchens. You start out with a little bit of oil, and you fry some garlic. Then you throw in some tomatoes, some tomato paste. You fry it. You make sure it doesn't stick. Imagine a film that had these gangsters feeding children and cooking. This was unheard of. A little bit of wine. It put you right in the kitchen, right in the living room. These people were us. They were us, except that they would walk out the door and then kill somebody. And so you got both close to them personally and then saw and witnessed them do terrible things to other families and, in the end, to themselves. Before this movie premiered in public, the Paramount executives got a screening. They weren't impressed. Here's Peter Bart, the former VP of production at Paramount. People of Paramount saw it and unanimously felt it was too slow and too talky and at 2 hours and 20 minutes would not really be a success commercially. Then on March 24th, 1972, after years of negotiations, the fate of The Godfather rested in the hands of the public. It was an amazing happy time when the movie came out. We used to drive around and watch the, the cues of the people to, because it was such a thrill to us to see so many people going. This was truly a sensation, the first major picture of the 1970s to really hit at the box office. It's the first movie to ever be Gone with the Wind. You know, Gone with the Wind was the box office champ till The Godfather opened. While Paramount celebrated at their premiere, the mafiosi were furious. They had been snubbed. Joseph Colombo's son, Anthony, called Al Ruddy demanding an explanation. Where are our tickets to the premiere? Well, the last thing in the world we wanted was those people at our premiere. He said, well, don't you think that's unfair? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, when Hollywood does a movie about the Army, the generals are the guests of honor. In a movie about the Navy, the admirals are sitting up front. You think we'd be the guests of honor in this thing except those we can't see the movie? They were really getting ugly about the whole thing. So we decided to give them their very own premiere. When it was over, the projectionist called me. He said, I've been a projectionist for 25 years. Nobody ever gave me a $1,000 tip. That's how much they love the movie, literally. When the movie came out, the FBI immediately began to notice in its surveillance of real mob figures that the movie was having an influence on the way the real mob act. They started kissing hands, kissing rings, calling each other godfather, treating themselves in a more genteel way. When we come in with the guns out and the whole routine, they got the tape of the godfather in the television VCR, watching it. They loved it. The score of the mafia movie, The Godfathers, became the mob's national anthem. The Godfather, the film the mob tried in every way to destroy, to block, was now adopted by the Mafia. It was the ultimate irony. The Mafia believed that the Godfather legitimized them. It was a legacy Coppola never intended. The film was the highest-grossing film of 1972 and was, for a time, the highest-grossing film ever made. Jaws eclipsed that. It won the Oscars for Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Adapted Screenplay for Puzo and Coppola. 
Its seven other Oscar nominations included Al Pacino, James Caan, and Robert Duvall for Best Supporting Actor, and Coppola for Best Director. It was followed by sequels The Godfather Part Two and The Godfather Part Three. On this day in history, The Godfather went national. This is Our American Stories. As always, are this days in histories brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. our American stories and we love to talk about art and music and every once in a while the news when the news is well not related to politics and recently the great Chuck Berry passed away and so I reached out to Jesse and for the hour a very special take on the life of Chuck Berry begins now Barry was born October 18, 1926, and passed away at the age of 90 on March 18, 2017. He's an American guitarist, singer, and songwriter, and one of the pioneers of rock and roll music. Some argue he's the founding father. Others say that Chuck Berry, and not Elvis Presley, deserves the title of the king of rock and roll. With songs like Maybelline from 1955, Roll Over Beethoven in 56, and Johnny B. Good in 58, Barry refined and developed rhythm and blues into the major elements that made rock and roll distinctive, with lyrics focusing on teen life and featuring guitar solos that were a major influence on rock and roll. In 1972, John Lennon and Yoko Ono performed with Chuck Berry on The Mike Douglas Show when John Lennon was asked to introduce Chuck Berry. I think he's the greatest. I really love him. It's an honor to be here backing him. If you were to try to try and give rock and roll another name, you might call it Chuck Berry, right? In the 1950s, the whole generation worshipped his music, and when you see him perform today, past and present all come together, and the message is, hail, hail, rock and roll, right on. Here he is, Chuck Berry! Then, Chuck Berry, John Lennon, Yoko Ono, and the rest of Lennon's band sang one of Berry's hits called Memphis, Tennessee. Number, 
This song originally charted in the UK at number six in 1963. The Beatles recorded five versions of this song, Memphis, Tennessee, for BBC Radio. One version that was recorded in 1963 for the Pop Go the Beatles radio show was included on the Live at the BBC in 1994. This live version of the song on the Mike Douglas Show in 1972 that we're listening to was going great, but lingering just over Chuck Berry's right shoulder on the stage was Yoko Ono. When she made this little contribution to the song... Chuck Berry's eyes lit up like someone had lit a match under his foot. It was a teenage wedding and the old folks wished him well. You could see that Pierre did truly love the mademoiselle. And now the young monsieur and madame have rung the chapel bell. Chuck Berry inspired musicians of all sorts from every corner of the globe. It's hard to find a professional musician who doesn't list him as one of their major musical influences, if not the most so. Here's Angus Young, co-founder and lead guitarist of the Australian rock group ACDC, on Chuck Berry's influence on his performance. From the early days picking up things, you know, you would watch somebody like Chuck Berry or something, you know, he would always, uh, you know, especially if he was uh, singing, you know, he always had little raps that he had going with an audience, you know, he'd go, hello, and the audience go, hello, you know, and you go, hello, and they go, hello, you know, and he had all of that you know, he'd just go like this and the audience would respond. So I would try and do, I thought, well, with Chuck and him, maybe I can do it with the guitar. So I'd go, <coughs> you know, and if the audience went, you go, <coughs> you know, and you sort of build it up. <coughs> so you get like, <coughs> and this is what Bruce Springsteen had to say about Chuck Berry. Musicians of my generation, I first really heard Chuck Berry through the Rolling Stones. I think I learned my first Chuck Berry lead from Keith Richards, probably. And uh, uh, that first Rolling Stones record, where I think they had uh, O'Carroll and, and a, a few other Chuck Berry songs on it. I guess the funny thing was, I think that his influence on, on my own writing came out more later on, when I wanted to write the way I thought that people talked, because that's how I felt. That's how he writes. You know, when I'm 65, 70, and I got my grand, you know, my grandkids. Chuck Berry, yeah, I met Chuck Berry. <laughs> you know? Matter of fact, I had backed Chuck Berry up one night. <laughs> you did? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a story you're always going to tell. The great Eric Clapton also deeply admired Chuck Berry. Here, with guitar in hand, Clapton talks about how Barry paved the way for all other guitarists who would follow his direction. If you were going to play rock and roll, or any upbeat number, and you wanted to take a guitar ride, you would end up playing like Chuck, or what you learned from Chuck. Because there is very little, actually, other choice. There's not a lot of other ways to play rock and roll other than the way Chuck plays it. If you tried to play, you know all this stuff that's, like, I was doing the double string stuff. It, oh, it's really full, you know, and if you, if you give me a, a, a break in a, in a fast, you know, and I, and I start playing single, single lines, it doesn't sound right. It just doesn't sound right. It sounds thin or something, or, or too fiddly. Well, you know, I like to go... So. 
It would be okay, but it wouldn't be as good as... Really, for me anyway. So he's really laid the law down for playing that that kind of music. When we come back, we'll hear from other musicians like Keith Richards and Paul Simon about the massive reach and influence that the music of Chuck Berry had on the entire world. And later, we'll hear from the master himself about his early life, musical influences, songwriting methods, and so much more. Chuck Berry, for the hour, like you'll only hear right here on Our American Stories. Arrested on charges of unemployment, he was sitting in the witness stand. The judge's wife called up the district attorney, she said, free that brown-eyed man. If you want your job, you better free that brown-eyed man. Flying across the desert in a TWA, I saw a woman walk across the American story. We continue our celebration of the life of Chuck Berry, who recently passed at the age of 90. As always, when we dig into music, we go to Jesse. This is a mean old world. Try to live in by yourself. You're listening to an outtake from the movie Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll. It's a 1987 documentary film directed by Taylor Hackford that chronicles two 1986 concerts celebrating rock and roll musician Chuck Berry's 60th birthday. A soundtrack album was released in October of 1987 on the MCA label. Chuck Berry on vocals, Eric Clapton, and Keith Richards on guitar. Keith Richards was the guy who handed Chuck Berry his trophy at the 1986 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Awards. Here is how he introduced Chuck. It's very difficult for me to talk about Chuck Berry because I lifted every lick he ever played. Um, so I think really I want to keep it real short, you know, and say, okay, Chuck, uh, where the hell are you? And... Uh, and let's have the statue, and I'd love to give it to you. This is a gentleman that started it all, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, I'd like to greet Mr. Chuck Berry here right now. Keith Richards and Chuck Berry had an interesting relationship over the years. One of the most notorious stories that the two share from being on the road together was the time that Chuck Berry punched Keith Richards in the face. Here's Keith Richards on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon with the story. I was in a dressing room. He was doing a gig. Uh, he went off to collect the money, I think. And, That's uh, what it always he, is. He was a typewad. Bless you, Chuck. But, uh, he, he, and his guitar was laid out in his case. And I went, oh, come on, Keith, you know, just a touch. You've got to play a little bit, right? Yeah, just let me give it a, an E chord. Or, uh, <laughs> 
he walks in and goes, nobody touches my guitar. Boom! Uh, that's one of Chuck's biggest hits, baby. <laughs> <laughs> the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library hosted the 2012 Awards for Song Lyrics of Literary Excellence, which were presented to Chuck Berry and Leonard Cohen. Special guests included Paul Simon, Elvis Costello, and Keith Richards. Here, Paul Simon talks about his love for the music and lyrics of Chuck Berry's Maybelline. As I was motivating over the hill, I saw Maybelline in a Coupe de Ville, a Cadillac rolling about on the open road. Nothing outraced my V8 Ford. Cadillac doing about 95, rolling bumper to bumper and side to side. Maybelline, why can't you be true? Yeah, so I said, love a song and a car race combined uh, together. Uh, the imagery is so vivid, and uh, I was completely there, you know. Uh, as a guy from Queens, I was definitely in another place than uh, where the D-train was taking me into Manhattan. Cadillac doing about 104, Ford got hot, couldn't do no more. Dunn got cloudy, started to rain, to my horn for the passing lane. Rainwater blowing up under my hood, I knew that was doing my motor good. Such a great story, and the lyrics so perfect. Uh, and not just perfect, but also rhythmic. This is, this is real heart-thumping rhythm. This is not, hello darkness, my old friend floating up into the ether somewhere. This is actually, <laughs> this, is, this is lyrics with a deep groove in them. Here again is Paul Simon, this time breaking down the lyrics for Johnny B. Good. Deep down in Louisiana, close to New Orleans, way back up in the woods among the evergreens, there was a log cabin made of earth and wood where lived a country boy named Johnny B. Good. For me, again, uh, it was like a magical place to hear about this description of rural America. It's like, it's like uh, Zora Neale Thurston territory here and uh, uh, an amazing bit of writing for the 50s. Uh, something that's left uh, you know, a powerful impression with me who was just starting to play guitar and thinking about this kid, this country boy, you know, was carrying his guitar in a gunny sack, whatever that was, you know, and... Chuck Berry's often been described as uh, one of the great, great poets of teenage life. And uh, this is true, of course, you know, with uh, Sweet, Little si Sweet Little Sixteen and uh, rock and roll music, no particular place to go. Uh, but, but I think of the other songs uh, as more powerful. Then Paul Simon broke down the lyrics to Chuck Berry's song called Memphis, Tennessee. This tale of uh, domestic separation and heartache. Long distance information, give me Memphis, Tennessee. Help me find the party trying to get in touch with me. She could not leave her number, but I know who placed the call because my uncle took the message and he wrote it on the wall. Help me information, get in touch with my Marie. She's the only one who'd phone me here from Memphis, Tennessee. Her home is on the south side, high up on a ridge, just a half a mile from the Mississippi Bridge. Help me information, more than that I cannot add, only that I miss her and all the fun we had. But we were pulled apart because her mom did not agree and tore apart our happy home in Memphis, Tennessee. Last time I saw Marie, 
She's waving me goodbye with hurry home drops on her cheek that trickled from her eye. Marie is only six years old. Information, please try to put me home to her in Memphis, Tennessee. That again was Paul Simon at the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library 2012 Awards for Song Lyrics of Literary Excellence presented to Chuck Berry. Here, Paul Simon gives his parting words for Chuck and introduces Elvis Costello. We're all indebted to him. I think probably the greatest prize for any songwriter is that there's people remember and sing their songs. And certainly, as was just mentioned before, we're now 50, 60 years down the road, and Chuck certainly has earned that prize. And I think he's entitled to every other prize out there, except the Nobel Peace Prize. So here to uh, perform is uh, my good friend Elvis Costello. Here, Elvis Costello talks about sharing Chuck Berry's music with his children before he breaks out into his live cover of Chuck Berry's No Particular Place to Go. Originally recorded on March 25, 1964 in Chicago, Illinois, featuring the same music as Berry's earlier hit, School Days. It's a fantastic day, I have to say. I can't believe I'm standing up here. I can't believe we were backstage and, and just to see the assembled people backstage, it was like a hallucination. <laughs> I, it's one of the more intimidating things you'll ever do is play a Chuck Berry song in front of Chuck Berry. Without a band. <laughs> but I, I, I uh, have to say, I have, I have the, the privilege of being the father of five-year-old twin boys who are discovering music, and, and they ask me what these black p- pieces of shellac are that I keep putting on in the corner of the room. And I said, they're, um, they're, they're records. Um, <laughs> and they asked, how do they work? And I said... Well, if I shake you, you make a noise. If I shake you like this, if you put the needle in the groove, sound comes out. That's the same thing. And I, then I put on rollover Beethoven, and they just went crazy. <laughs> this is a Chuck Berry song I heard when I was uh, 10 years old. I I didn't know what a safety belt was at the time, but I suspected it was something rude. The song is a comical four-verse story. The first verse, the narrator is cruising in his car with his girlfriend, and they kiss. In the second verse, they start to cuddle and drive slow. In the third verse, they decide to park and take a walk, but are unable to release the seatbelt. In the last verse, they drive home, defeated by the recalcitrant seatbelt. Cruising and playing the radio When we come back, we'll hear from Chuck Berry himself about his early life, the music that influenced him at a young age, how he goes about writing a song, and so much more. This is Our American Stories, the life of Chuck Berry, when we return. (laughs) 
This is Our American Story. We continue with Jesse's reporting on the life, the legend, Chuck Berry. Up in the morning and out to school The teacher is teaching the golden rule American history and practical man You study him hard and hoping to pass Working your fingers right down to the bone The guy behind you won't leave you alone Born into a middle-class family in St. Louis, Chuck Berry gave his first public performance at Sumner High School. While still a student, he was convicted of armed robbery and was sent to a reformatory where he was held from 1944 to 1947. After his release, Berry settled into married life and worked at an automobile assembly plant. By 1953, influenced by the guitar riffs and showmanship techniques of the bluesman T-Bone Walker, Barry began performing with the Johnny Johnson Trio. His big break came when he traveled to Chicago in May of 1955 and met Muddy Waters, who suggested that he contact Leonard Chess of Chess Records. With Chess Records, he recorded the song Maybelline, which sold over a million copies, reaching number one on the Billboard magazine's Rhythm and Blues chart. Maybelline, why can't you be true? Oh, Maybelline, why can't you be true? You just started doing the things you used to do. As I was motivating over the hill, I saw Maybelline in a coupe de A Cadillac rolling on an open road, nothing out to run my VA boat. A Cadillac doing about 95, bumper to bumper, rolling side to side. Maybelline, why can't you be true? Oh, Maybelline, why can't you be true? You just started back doing the things you the 1986 documentary Hail Hail Rock and Roll that chronicles Chuck Berry's 60th birthday, we hear a candid discussion between Chuck Berry and the legendary guitarist Robbie Robertson from the band. Pouring through an old scrapbook, Berry looks back on his life, his father, the church deacon, his musical influences, poetry, and the discipline he has while performing on stage. What is that? A library card? Library card, yeah. And uh, a Check stub from National Tea Company. Check mm-hmm. stubs. I'm in the money here. I'm making mm-hmm. ninety dollars a week here at Fisher Body Auto. What were you doing there? Uh, sweeping the floor. That's all we could do. <laughs> they didn't care nothing about these songs there. <laughs> uh, no songs were. No, I was singing uh, for twenty dollars. Who is this? Night. Uh, is this Musician Union card here? Oh, I got who? that in '54 and uh, started learning. Uh, but who is this person's name on here? Well, that's my name, uh, sort of camouflaged that in uh-huh, Baron, <laughs> Chuck Baron, because uh, I, I wasn't big, and then I didn't want to infiltrate. My dad was a deacon. Uh huh. So you don't want the. Uh, he didn't the, want you playing this music uh, from the. I didn't want him to know I was <laughs> yeah. playing it. That's for sure. I mean, I don't know how old you were at this. Period. Well, I was 29 when Maybelline came out. So school days was maybe a year. You were twenty nine when Maybelline came up. Yeah, I had a house and a car and two children. What made you think to write songs about up in the morning and off to school? Because when I went out on the road, I found that over half of the audience was uh, teenagers, kids in school. So if you're whoever you're singing, you play what the people want. You know, <laughs> sing about them, and they'll listen to you. Uh, in nightclubs, I had nothing to sing but Wee Wee Hour. I had two, two records when I first Wee Wee Hours, and then I'd sing some Muddy Waters and whatever you, whatever the, 
down the way where the lights are gay, you know, it's kooky, it's not anything about Jamaica. My first inspiration was Nat Cole in high school. Mm-hmm. You see, by nature, see, I'm a lover, you see. I see. But I never could get a chance to love. (laughs) No, no, we're back in high school now. I'm I'm innocent, you see. And uh, no girlfriend, you know, because uh, I always had a gift to gab, and I I always did like comedy, you know, and poetry. Comedy is too silly for love. Poetry is too serious. So I was left out. Uh Uh-huh. Until I got into uh, show business. (laughs) And I found that uh, you don't uh, go after your inspirations, <laughs> they come to you, you know. Carl Hogan mm-hmm. uh, was the inspiration for most of my solos. Uh, uh, Carol, Johnny B. Good, uh, Rollover Beethoven, Is he the first guy that you that played that? That played something like that. Yeah, that played something like that. He had it in the center. He had something like this in the center of a solo, and and I uh, I opened my song with it, and uh, Rollo Beethoven after it hit, uh, later on Johnny B. Good hit, later on Carol hit with the same solo, mm-hmm. yeah, a little difference in the figure, <laughs> oh, yeah. you know, but then uh, same principle. Start at the top tonic with O and five, or eight and five, mm-hmm. and uh, and then get away, do your changes and move on out. Uh, what do you exploit your lyrics and uh, keep your rhymes and wind up with a break and out and you get an applaud do it again <laughs> we're listening to a conversation between legendary rock and roll blues musician chuck berry and guitarist robbie robertson from the band that was in the 1986 documentary hail hail rock and roll it chronicles chuck berry's 60th birthday released 30 years before he passed away in 2017 Looking back in that old scrapbook with Robbie Robertson, Barry goes over a list that showed how much he got paid in those early years and how it influenced him to stick with music as a career choice. We also hear more from Chuck Berry on how he constructed his song lyrics and made his music. Gleason's Bar, set August 15, 1955, Cleveland, Ohio, $800 a week behind $21 a night at the Cosmo over there. And just the week before... I was making $32 at the Frolic Bar, $14 at the Three Brothers, $60 with the whole band at the Green Dragon. The Capital Cocktail only paid $15, but Gleason's $800 a week. That's when you decided, I think this, this is for me, huh? This is the way to go. That was a good opening act. <laughs> and it didn't matter to me. And then. Because everybody the, was arguing over, I'm going to close the show, I I'm going to close the show. But Chuck Berry. Because Chuck Berry didn't know that the star closes a show until maybe two years into his career when he began to look at the money that the stars got and why they close. Then he wanted to close, you know. And still, really, it doesn't really it doesn't matter today whether I close or open the show because I'm going to try to rob everybody of the starship. Try and tell a story, Robbie. It came from actually poetry. Poetry portraits a scene or a story, and uh, that's where my uh, lyrics uh, would originate from. Some thought that uh, uh, from it came a story and then proceeded with uh, music or some riff that uh, reminded me of uh, some uh, 
situation that brought about a story. I have stood on the stage in the Cosmopolitan and uh, thinking of how I could uh, produce something like Little Richard's Tutti Frutti, which was really sizzling at the time. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, the main thing about it here, like Little Richard, sometimes I couldn't understand what they were saying, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I went into writing uh, Maybelline, I, I uh, had a... Uh, desire and an intention, you know, to speak the words uh, of a song real clear, because Nat Cole taught me that, you know. Nat Cole had a diction, uh -huh. I think, that was just superb, you know. Uh -huh. Pretend you're happy when you're blue. And you could hear every word. His S's, T's, P's, and G's. Mm -hmm. But uh, when you're singing like, uh, roll over Beethoven, roll over Be you got to speak distinct in order to get your message out. Especially with the number of words that you use. <laughs> yeah, you well, know, I mean, the words are flying boogie, by. Boogie is eight to the bar. So if you have a word, if you have two words with four syllables, you got to say them with a bar. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Once again, we're listening to the great Chuck Berry in a candid discussion with guitarist Robbie Robertson from the 1986 documentary about Chuck Berry called Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll. When we come back, more from Chuck Berry on his first gig in New York, his hiatus from music and inevitable comeback, why he never used drugs, and his eventual passing at the age of 90 years old. The life of Chuck Berry, for the hour. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories for the hour, the life of Chuck Berry, who died recently at the age of 90 years old. Let's go back to Jesse and the rest of this remarkable musical story. And I want my jockey to play Roll over Beethoven I gotta hear it again today You know my temperature rising The jukebox blowing a fuse My heart beating rhythm And my soul keep a singing the blues I Roll over Beethoven Tell Tchaikovsky the news Roll over Beethoven is the 1956 hit single Written by Chuck Berry Originally released on Chess Records with Drifting Heart as the B-side. The lyrics of the song mention rock and roll and the desire for rhythm and blues to replace classical music. Well, if you feel it and like it, go get your lover then reel and rock it. Roll it over then move on up just a trifle further then reel and rock with Run another roll over Beethoven, dig these rhythm and blues. The title of the song is directed at Beethoven, a rollover in his grave in reaction to the new genre of music that Barry was promoting. The song's been covered by many other artists, including the Beatles and the Electric Light Orchestra. Rolling Stone magazine ranked it number 97 on its list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. Hey, in the morning, I'm giving you my morning, don't you step on my blue suede shoes. 
play my fiddle, ain't got nothing to lose. Roll over Beethoven, tell Tchaikovsky the news. We've been listening to a candid discussion between the late Chuck Berry and guitarist Robbie Robertson from the 1986 documentary Hail Hail Rock and Roll that chronicles Chuck Berry's 60th birthday. So far, we've heard about his early musical influences, poetry, and how he crafts his music. In this final clip from that interview, Chuck Berry talks to Robertson about his first gig in New York City, eventually taking a break from the music scene, his inevitable comeback, and why he never became involved in the world of drugs. When I went to uh, the um, Paramount, my first New York gig, and I didn't know that you changed. You know, you do six, five, six shows mm-hmm. a day. I didn't know that you changed. And the one suit that we had was satin and had the impressions of seersucker. You know, seersucker, you, you mm-hmm. old enough to know what a yeah. seersucker is? And it was wrinkled, and, you know, and I found out that they had irons and, and, uh, Things to do your clothes up also, and people there to sew your clothes, all these new things, you know. And and really, until I got to the Paramount, I didn't know that you got had a room to yourself, you know, like a dressing room. Mm-hmm. Well, this is almost like home. All you have to have is a car and your guitar, and you can make it in the world. You're mm-hmm. just constantly playing gigs. You have to have one every night, you know, have somewhere to sleep. I was away for almost a couple of years, you know. I went away... Uh, making $1,200 a night. When I came back, the Beatles had come to America, and my salary then was 2000 right from uh, being away. Now, if this is, this is American, you stay away somewhere, you come back, you get uh, more pay. I came out with Nadine and, and no particular place to go, and it went a little place. As time went on, I wrote maybe uh, something that was heard. I can't think of just now. But finally, in, in uh, 70, which was six years later, here's Dingling, smash hit, recorded in England, you know. Okay, and I say, say, oh, he made a comeback, made a comeback. Well, frankly, other than my absence, it never left. I was old enough to uh, lay off of smoking, and of course, I never did get into drugs, you know, but... Um, you never did any drugs in your life? You no, know, I don't care who believes. No, 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 no. No, it doesn't believe me. No, I, I know, you know, but but you yourself have never done any drugs in your life. No, no, no. No, I wouldn't. And advise all others to, uh, if they're on it, try and get them, because I don't think they can, you know, but try anyway. But uh, it's, uh, I've just seen too many of my friends go here, Joplin, uh-huh. Hendrix, you name yeah. it, Ev Presley, you know, some of the greats have yeah. gone down the train. And I'm feeling fine without it. Chuck Berry never dabbled in drugs, but his life was definitely marked by some controversy over the years. He once opened a restaurant called the Southern Air in Missouri. According to a former waitress, Berry wired the woman's toilets with a video camera and recorded some 200 unsuspecting patrons that were using it. Charges were dropped when Berry agreed to compensate the victims financially. Due to getting ripped off early in his career and occasional run-ins with the IRS, Chuck always got paid in cash. A notable occasion in Australia, 1975, saw Barry caught at a Sydney airport with $50,000 in an attache case. There remains currency restrictions due to this famous incident. His insistence on being paid in cash led in 1979 to a four-month jail sentence and community service for tax evasion. But whatever personal issues Chuck Berry might have had are absolutely dwarfed by the massive influence his music and songwriting has had over the entire world. Barry contributed three things to rock music. 
an irresistible swagger, a focus on the guitar riff as the primary melodic element, and an emphasis on songwriting as storytelling. His records are a rich storehouse of the essential lyrical showmanship and musical components of rock and roll. In addition to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, just about everyone has covered Barry's songs. Though not technically accomplished, his guitar style is distinctive. He incorporated electronic effects to mimic the sound of bottleneck blues guitarists and drew on the influence of guitar players such as Carl Hogan and T-Bone Walker to produce a clear and exciting sound that many later guitarists would acknowledge as an influence in their own style. Among the honors Barry received were the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award in 1984 and the Kennedy Center Honors in 2000. He was ranked the 17th on Time Magazine's 2009 list of the 10 best electric guitar players of all time. He's included in several of the Rolling Stones magazine's greatest of all time lists. In 2003, the magazine ranked him number 6 in its list of the 100 greatest guitarists of all time. In December of 2004, six of his songs were included in Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time. Johnny Be Good, Maybelline, Rollover Beethoven, Rock and Roll Music, Sweet Little Sixteen, and Brown-Eyed Handsome Man were all included. And in 2008, Johnny Be Good ranked first in the 100 Greatest Guitar Songs of All Time. He was also one of the very first musicians to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on its opening in 1986. He was cited for having laid the groundwork for not only rock and roll sound, but a rock and roll stance. The Life of Chuck Berry. This is Our American Stories. Deep down in Louisiana, close to New Orleans, way back up in the woods among the evergreens, there stood a log cabin made of earth and wood, where lived a country boy named Johnny B. Good, who never ever learned to read or write so well, but he could play a guitar just like a ring in a bell. Go, go! Go, Johnny, go, go! And great job on that, Jesse. And one of the things that struck me about preparing for this was... Digging into the storytelling capability. And so you're listening to Johnny Good. And I want to read the lyrics to this song. Because it's epic short storytelling. It's efficient. It's evocative. It's beautiful. And here's how it starts. Deep down in Louisiana, close to New Orleans, way back in the woods among the evergreens, there stood a log cabin made of earth and wood, where lived a country boy named Johnny B. Good, who never ever learned to read or write so well, but he could play the guitar just like a ring and a bell. Go, 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 Johnny, go, go. Johnny be good. Second verse. He used to carry his guitar in a gunny sack, go sit beneath the tree by the railroad track. Oh, the engineers would see him sitting in the shade, strumming with the rhythm that the drivers made. The people passing by, they would stop and say, Oh my, but that little country boy could play. Go, go, Johnny, go. Go, Johnny, go, go. Johnny be good. And then the beautiful final verse, which rang loud as a bell to any American man or woman, black or white, rich or poor, who ever had a dream, and a mother who dreamed along with him. His, mo- his mother told him, someday you will be a man, and you will be the leader of a big old band. Many people coming from miles around to hear you play your music when the sun go down. Someday maybe your name will be in lights saying Johnny be good tonight. Spectacular. And each time they get to the chorus of this song, any singer who sings it, the chorus moves, it changes because the song changes. The verses reshape the chorus. This would be something Bruce Springsteen did throughout his entire career. Listen to the lyrics of Born in the USA and you'll hear Johnny be good. And you heard Springsteen say that in the beginning. 
that this man told him and taught him how to tell stories. I wanted to read one more thing. It's by Keith Richards, who wrote the write-up for Chuck Berry in that Rolling Stone issue on the greatest guitarists of all time. Chuck was playing a slightly heated-up version of Chicago Blues, that guitar boogie which all the cats were playing, but he took it up another level. He was slightly younger than the older blues guys, and his songs were more commercial without just being pop, which is a hard thing to do. Chuck had the swing. There's rock, but it's the role that counts. And Chuck had an incredible band in those early days. Willie Dixon on bass, Johnny Johnson on piano, Ebby Hardy, Freddie Bellow on drums. They understood what it was all about was the swing of it. It didn't get any better. He was not the easiest guy in the world to get along with, which was always a bit of a disappointment for me. The old son of a you-know-what just turned 85. I wish him a happy birthday, and I wish he could just pop around and say to me, hey, guys, let's go have a drink or do something. But Chuck wasn't that kind of cat. John Lennon said it best. If you tried to give rock and roll another name, you might have called it Chuck Berry. For the hour, the celebration of this remarkable American life, and again, music transcending race, color, class, the American art form that the world has adopted. And great work on this, as always, Jesse, the life of Chuck Berry, here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 